Good morning. It's good to be with all of you. Uh, for those of you I haven't gotten a chance to meet, my name's Justin. Uh, I get to have the privilege of being one of the elders and leaders of our beautiful, wonderful church family. And for those of you that know me, it's of no surprise that I love food. And one of my greatest icebreaker questions I want to ask you as we get going into this passage. And the question is, if you had one last meal, what would that meal be? Now, I've, as you think about it, I've always had a really hard time answering this question. And it's because we are what I like to call impulsive eaters. Now, that doesn't mean I'm up at 2 a.m. like raiding the fridge for ice cream. Not that type of impulsive. But if anybody's ever tried a meal plan and you're like, oh, we're going to have this on this day and this on this day and this on this day. My response is, well, what if I don't feel like it that day? So same idea when it comes to the last meal. I don't know what I want, but some of you may. So response, what would be your final meal if you were on death row? Good. What was it? Bulgogi. Oh, yeah. I could, I could ride with that one. That'd be awesome. Some cream barbecue. Go ahead. Anything with potatoes. Mashed potatoes, hash browns. I think I started going to uh, bubblegum all of a sudden, just like mashed potatoes, <laughs> potato scalloped, or sorry. That's, I love that movie. Any, anybody else? One more. Stay, oh, he's going like surf and turf. It's like, that's expensive. That's on somebody else's dime. So, okay, so I'm going to take this one step further. I don't want to just ask the question, what would be your last meal? But if you knew you were on death row, you, had, you were about to go, what would be the last thing you told your family and friends? If you had one opportunity to say one last thing that you wanted to leave an imprint on those that love you and that you love, what would be some of the things that you would say? Now, today we're beginning a series that's answering that question from the perspective of Jesus. We're starting and actually we're continuing a series we started last year on John, but we're continuing it looking at the Last Supper narrative of John 13 through 17. We're going to be diving into this over the next few months because this is Jesus on death row. This is the night before he is betrayed. This is about to be, as we see in this passage, when he's handed over to and betrayed so that he's led to his crucifixion. And so this meal, he knows, is the last words on death row. These are the last things that he is going to say. And so if you know it's going to be his last things, it should perk our interest. It should, we should have an anticipation of like, okay, there's probably some seriousness to what he's wanting us to learn here. And so we're looking at Jesus in the Last Supper. Now, we know this is the Last Supper. When we think of the Last Supper, many of you uh, go to the picture of Leonardo da Vinci, right? I almost said Leonardo DiCaprio. That would have been awful. Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> he's not a painter. So um, you think of it, right? You think of um, all sitting in a row. You think of uh, Jesus in the center. If you're old enough, you may remember the Da Vinci Code, which was like this like, fictional story, just to be very, very clear. But here Jesus is starting the meal. 
And what he's going to do is something so magnificent. It not only blows the mind of those people that are present in the moment, but it reverberates for centuries as the picture of not what we would expect. Because this is the picture he's showing us of what greatness and what power actually looks like. And it's not how the world expects it. So let's dive in. Verse 1. We find out that this is all part of the Passover tradition. Now for those of you that don't know, Passover was a meal that was uh, celebrated once a year in the Jewish people. And this was a meal that remembered God saving them from the people of Egypt. It's when God redeemed Israel from Egypt and made them, made them his own people. Now, for the record, we do something every um, Holy Week, the week before Easter, where we encourage our missional communities to walk through a, a, a Seder meal. Now, Josh Olson, who's back there with the kids, he's put together like a really great one-hour condensed version that does the 15 elements in like one hour for that's family friendly. So I hope you get to like experience that. But here's Jesus is experiencing probably for the 30th or so time. He would know this as he was walking through it. Now there's 15 different parts of the Passover meal. So if you think this is going to be like a 30 minute meal, like a quick little in and out. Nope. This, these were long experiences. Now during the portion of a meal, they retold the story. This was called the Megid. And at the time, the youngest person in the room would ask what they called the four questions. One of the questions was this, and I quote, why is it that on all other nights we dine either sitting upright or reclining, but on this night we all recline? Okay? So all of the disciples know that they know the framework. They know what they're doing and they know that they're not sitting up at the moment. Okay. So we think Leonardo da Vinci painting, but it was more like some them laying like this. Oh, thank you. I am not. I'm just going to leave that there. Okay. So he's laying down. This is why you don't do dialogue with your teacher. Somebody like that's going to whistle. Okay. So you're laying down. And they're all reclining like this. And they're not, uh, one of them, they kind of like alternate. Like, so we find out later in John that um, John was laying close to Jesus' bosom. Which means that John was right here, kind of in the seat of honor. So here Jesus is laying out. And who's the youngest person at the meal? John is. Right here. Historically, John is somewhere between 16 and 18 years old. So, if you have an expectation of your teenager that's lower than being a disciple of Jesus, we may need to adjust our expectations of teens. That's another sermon for another day. So here he is. Like, I'm getting uncomfortable. I don't know how they did this. So here he is, and John asks the question. And he asks the question, why, why is it that on all of the nights we sit up and we're reclining the whole meal, three hours plus, why are we reclining the whole time? This is what um, they would respond. The answer is, we recline at the table because in ancient times, a person who reclined at a meal was a free person, while slaves and servants stood. 
So I think, I like to imagine that it's at this portion of the meal that Jesus starts this part. Now it doesn't say at what point of the meal, but imagine they're all laying down, they're all reclining, and they say only the servants and slaves stood. So they would have other people walking around. But now Jesus, honored person of the day, right? He's the one that they would all be working around. What does it say in verse four? Jesus rose up. It literally can be translated, Jesus stood. What would that do in their imagination? All the people are expecting him, the honored person of the meal, to recline and be served. But now Jesus is literally taking on the posture of a slave and a servant in this moment. And this would blow their minds. He's not the one that's supposed to get up. Maybe Judas would stand up. Or maybe John because he's the youngest. But not Jesus. Jesus is not the one that's supposed to stand up. So he's now taking on the posture of a slave. But he takes it a step further. Verse 4 continues. It says, He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. So, historically, they wore two garments of the day. They wore an outer garment and then they wore an undergarment that was more closely uh, against their skin. One commentator says that Jesus did this to show his vulnerability to his disciples. So the one who in verse 3 has just received all things into his hands by the Father has now stood up like a slave, shown vulnerability taken his outer garment, wrapped it around his waist and put a towel. No longer is he just in the posture of a slave. Now he's wearing the garments of a slave. And then he takes it a step further. You think of this moment. All power and authority, all rule and reign, all prestige and honor, everything that all the bad guys fight for in movies, Jesus has just been handed and what does he do with that power? What does he do with that greatness? He takes on the posture and the garb of a slave. And then verse five. What does it say? He began to wash his disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So he's in the posture and the outfit and he takes it a step further. Now, I'm not the biggest fan of feet, okay? It's kind of gross if you think about it. But let's take that and think about what it was like for them. We have closed-toed shoes. We have socks. We're able to hide ours. They were open-toed shoes. They walked for miles at a time. They walked in the same streets that not only was there dirt and mud, but they also walked the same streets as animals. So it's not too far of a stretch to think that there's feces all up in their feet. Okay, so you have feces, blisters, scabs. I mean, do, do I need to give you any more of a mental image of the grossness of what could be right there, right? So here they are, the calluses, the blisters, all of it. It makes sense why this was a uh, the job of a slave. Who in their right mind would ever think about doing that? Like, oh, I'll volunteer for that job. Like a ministry fair, oh, there's this set up and this, and then, oh, washing feet, I'll take that one. No, they assign that to slaves. But Jesus takes it on 
himself. He goes to John and he sitting right next to him, the one that asked the question, the, teen, the teenager that says that Jesus loved and he washes the feet of the apostle John. He, and just think about him going down the line. He goes to Thomas, the one that would later doubt and he washes Thomas's feet. He goes to Bartholomew and I just name him because we always forget about him and I thought he should end up in here, right? To James, but then he gets to the point where he would be at the feet of Judas. Now, this passage is bookended. It's got in the beginning and the end, a recognition of Judas's betrayal. Jesus knows what Judas is about to do. And what Judas is about to do leads Jesus to the cross, to the ultimate level of shame and ridicule and pain and death. I mean, this is his betrayer. We do discover later that Judas is also the one that's been stealing from Jesus's ministry. So here's Judas, Jesus, dressed as a garb. He's already used the towel on his waist to wipe off the dirt and scum and filth off other people's feet. He's literally taking on his physical body, their dirt. And then he gets to Judas. And what does he do to Judas? He washes Judas's feet too. I mean, wait a second. I thought this guy had all power and greatness. And now he's doing that. Why in the world would he do that? And then he gets to Peter and Peter in his typical impulsive fashion tells Jesus, no, no, you don't get to do this. You got to do all of it. And what is Jesus' response? If I don't clean you, then you have no part in me. I mean, magnificent what's happening here. And then Jesus goes on in verses 15 to 17. I'm going to read this. He goes to say, this is an example for you. So this is what it says in verse 15. For I've given you an example that you should also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That last one's tricky. It's one thing to know them. Okay, Jesus, you've set a pattern. You've set an example. This is the bar that you've given us. I, yeah, I got that. And you may be sitting here like, Justin, I know this passage. I get this passage. Great. But what does he say? Blessed are you if you do them. He affirms this in Matthew 20 elsewhere. It says this in verses 25 to 28. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servants. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is giving us a new picture of what success, power and greatness look like. He's saying, you want to be great. You want to be successful. What is the picture of that? I mean, think about what is your scorecard of success? 
How do you know when you're living faithfully? How do you know when you're living successfully? How do you know when you have power and authority? We tend to, in our culture, think of greatness as more, right? When you're great, there's more. And, and this is what I struggle with. I, I, this is difficult for me because when I think of success, I'm not thinking about how I'm serving people. That's not, that's not what comes to my brain automatically. But what Jesus is doing is he's showing us this. And Jesus's example of serving Judas especially is the way of expressing and the ultimate example of enemy love. Ephesians 4.15 tells us that our picture of maturity is Jesus. We are to grow up in every way like him. And this is the pattern and example we are to follow. Dallas Willard defines maturity as the ability to have spontaneous enemy love. I want to say that again. What does it look like to be mature? Willard would say spontaneous enemy love. Now, some of us like, okay, yeah, love your enemy as yourself. That's the picture. Like, yeah. I mean, Jesus is setting the example by washing Judas's feet. Okay, but like the spontaneous part, like I, like I have to work towards this. That's good. Work towards it. But the picture of maturity is when you can do to your enemies what Jesus does for you. Think of the people in your life who need a little bit extra grace sometimes. The people that drive you mad, who ridicule you and speak against you, drive you nuts. The example of greatness Jesus sets for us as the people of God who have been saved by faith is to serve them. So I want to ask you the question, how's this going in your life? Are you naturally laying down your life for your enemies? Do you regularly forgive and serve those who have even hurt you? Typically, at this point in the sermon, someone like me would invite you to serve the church better. It's like I just set you up and here's how you can serve the church. Right. But I'm not going to go there because what often happens is when someone's telling you these things, it could be perceived as do more, try harder. Okay, greatness. Okay, serve. Good. God, checklist. What am I going to do this week? Oh, buckle up the bootstraps. Do everything I can to serve. And, and I want to be great. So I'm going to do everything in my power to serve people. But how many of you have tried doing that and it doesn't have legs to last through the, your whole life? It doesn't have staying power. Yeah, it's good for a little bit of time. But it doesn't carry the weight and it doesn't transform your heart to the point where you spontaneously can love your enemy. That's because oftentimes we ha not only have to address the actions of what greatness is uh, doing here. We have to look at the motivations that fueled this. And that goes back to verse 3. What motivated Jesus to serve in this way? Why in the world would he voluntarily do this? Let's look at verse three again. It says this, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands, and listen, that he had come from God and was going back to God. 
And as a result of that, that's when he does what he did. So listen, why did Jesus do it? Because of his relational connection to God the Father. The relationship that God had within himself for eternity past, Father, Son, Spirit, was the motivation that fueled Jesus' actions. It was his connection to the Father that fueled the actions. And Jesus goes on to do the same thing for Peter. In verse 8, what does he tell him? Peter denies him and says that, Peter, you have no part of him unless excuse me, you have no part of me unless you let me clean you. We have to receive from our relationship with God if we're going to live out what God has called us to do. Jesus received, it's from the Father. I know my relationship with the Father. I know where I come from. I know that I am from the Father. I know I'm going back to him. I'm connected to him. And because of my connection, Jesus would say, then I can go and serve. I can go and say this. A lack of doing what Jesus has asked you to do is a symptom of a lack of understanding of what you received from him. Let me say that again. A lack of doing is a symptom of a lack of understanding. Why do we serve? Go and do, but why? Do you remember how much God in Christ has served you? Do you remember that he has laid down his life for you? That while we were yet sinners, the servanthood of Jesus went to the point of he died for you. We serve. We go and lay down our life for the least of these. I mean, this is... This is deeply embedded in our Soma identity, right? We are a family of servant missionaries. We serve King Jesus by serving the least of these. It's what we call our MCs to do. This is what we call one another to do. It's so deeply embedded in who we are, we can forget why we're motivated for it. We serve because we have been served. Let me take it a step further. We love... Spontaneous enemy love. Why? Because I have been loved. I have received love from the Father. The gospel is that you and I, in our sin, are enemies of God. We are, what it says, children of wrath. Part of the dominion of darkness. We needed to experience someone to pursue us. And love us if we were to even have any chance of being connected to God. We'll see in the next chapter that there's only one way to the Father. And that's Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He, we had to receive that. So what allows me for spontaneous enemy love? Well, what happens when I'm not doing that? What happens when I'm not being loving? When I'm not expressing love? It's because in that moment I've forgotten how much I have been loved. So oftentimes we don't need to say, hey, go and love others. No, what we need to say is, how has God loved you in Christ? What have you received from him? We serve because we've been served. We forgive because we have been forgiven. We lay down our life because somebody else's life was laid down for us. We can go on and on of how all of this is first given to us by Jesus. 
And this is what God brings God most glory. Because when our lives tell the truth about who God is in our lives, that's when we glorify him. So what is greatness? When we do what Jesus asks us to do, we serve, but we don't just do it because we want to be great. We do it because we have received it first. So a question for you, what command of God in your life that you have an easy time ignoring? Is it love? Is it forgiveness? Is it serving? Is it sharing? Is it blessing? Is it listening? Is it eat? whatever, like, any of them. This picture is serving. What have you received from Christ that will change what you do? Do you need to remember how much God has forgiven you so that you can forgive others? Do you need to reflect on how much God has served you? The fact that he emptied himself, as Philippians 2 says, and he took on the form of a slave and went to the point of death on the cross. That, and we receive not, how do I say this? We don't receive in a somber, sorrowful way. As in like, uh. Like, what I want us to learn is we receive this as a celebration. This is good news. This is not just hard news. We give because we have been given to. We are generous because we reflect on the extravagant generosity of our God to us. We love because we were enemies and now we are beloved children of God. And because we are beloved, we see the a face of joy in God. We now, as a result, are the expression of that to our neighbors. We get to. And so... Where is it that you are ignoring that you need to receive? What we need to live out the life that God has called us to is to have the same motivation and connection that Jesus had. What needs to fuel us is to be united with God like Jesus, to be united with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And it's in that deeper connection with God that deeper understanding, that deeper experience, the reveling in the goodness of the news that we've received, the celebrating, the raising of the hands, the clapping, all of those things. It's when we realize and learn what God has done for us and connected to him, then we go and live out what God's called us to. So my challenge is don't put the cart before the horse. Don't hear this and say, oh, I gotta go serve. Yes, but... Pause. What have you received? How has God forgiven you? How has God loved you? How has God revealed himself to you? How has God been good? Like we just sang, you are good. How has God been good to you? And then from that, ask the question, God, how do you want me to help others experience that same thing? This is the vision of renewal that we've been talking about for the last few months. It's about strengthening and empowering our connection to God himself so that we could do it other, um, live that out, excuse me. 
oftentimes uh, we, we take some time to look back. Um, last week we started the year in prayer and worship. And what I want to do is I want to say, look back for a moment um, and say, okay, how have we been doing? What have we said that we as a church family are going to be working on? And how have we done at that? Uh, so, this, so this is a little bit of a, a family business moment, if I can, but also to give you a little bit of a picture of where we're going. But I want you to hear that this is something we have a very, very high challenge to live out what it means to make disciples who make disciples in everyday life. We are in a lot of ways reimagining and rewriting what the church could be in our moment where you're not coming to primarily consume, but you're coming to be empowered so that you can lay down your life for others. That where church is what it means to be the people of God in the midst of everyday life. Where we are the family of servant missionaries, like I said. We are, the, we are the church. We come and gather to be reminded and be refueled and be regenerated and celebrate. And all those good things that happen here. So that we can go be sent in everyday life. Okay, so, But what we've discovered, it's a high challenge. It's a high bar to live as a disciple of Jesus. And so what we, rather than just have a high challenge, we also want to be, how do we have a high invitation where we are, uh, in, as a church family, ensuring that there are environments, intentional times, where we are experiencing and receiving from God so that we can therefore go and live it out. So I look back, you see this behind me, just a few things that we said in September when I got back from my sabbatical. And I just want to go through this quickly and then share a few things. So the primer series, we did uh, the, uh, the journey to renewal. We, we took time looking at the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 19 and that journey. This is going to still play a very pivotal role. It's currently, uh, I'm working on creating an actual book out of it so that we can have it. And if, as new people come in, they weren't part of it. You can be a reminder. You'll see why that's going to play a role in a moment. We, we try to institute a, a rule of life, individual rules of life. Where, and the whole idea of a rule of life is so that you can be very intentional with every area and aspect of your life so that you can encounter God in the midst of all of your life. It was not a do more, try harder. The goal of the rule of life is how is your life organized in such a way that you are experiencing encountering God, that you're ordering your life for the sake of him and his work in your life. If you don't have one of those, there's one in the back. We can get you one to work it out. And if you've been doing it, you're probably discovering it's a little bit harder than we first thought because you're like, oh man, that's a great idea. I'm gonna do that. And then you try to start doing it and you're like, really? Like, I can't do this. This is hard. Great, let's adjust. And that's what the whole purpose of it is, okay? So we did some of that. Um, renewal retreats, I'm going to hold off on that. We're going to talk more about that. We've been talking about leadership renewal often. We've been talking about giving our MC leaders breaks. Um, many of our MC leaders have been serving eight plus years. Uh, we talked to uh, uh, Jeff and Karen have taken a break from eldership. These are, and these are all very good things. If we're going to have longevity, it's good for people to have a break every so often to be renewed so that they can be faithful in ministry for a long, long time. So these are, we've talked about that. Our MCs have realigned a little bit. For those of you who don't know, as a reminder, MCs are missional communities 
We organize as a family of servant missionaries and we're, we live out what it means to be sent to make disciples who make disciples across cultures in all of life. So that's the heartbeat of what we do. That's what we're all about. Everyday people, normal lives, organizing themselves as a family so that they can share their faith with the lost. So some of them are uh, realigning, uh, which is good, and it's becoming more uh, fruitful and faithful into the call that God's done for us. Discipleship pathway I'll share with you in a moment. Uh, Leadership coaching, making sure leaders are refreshed and renewed, and I have one-on-one time with them. We were doing quarterly prayer and worship nights. We've started an elder development track. So there's currently four men that are part of the church that are partnering with Soma Tacoma and Jeff Vanderstelt to walk through a development process. This is not like a, hey, we're going to affirm you. It's a no, we want to develop and see you grow so that by God's grace in the next few years, you can um, take, a step, take a step into being an elder. And we, uh, Brandon B and his family have joined us. That was an intention. I'm already being blessed by him being here, his family being here. And there's a lot of good stuff coming from. So that's what we said we would do. And that's a little bit of a response of like, okay, we said this. Now here's what we did. Not just that. Now I want to say, what does it look like moving ahead? Because at the end of the day, renewal is still the thing that we need as God's people. The culture that we're in is we're going upstream against the culture. We're trying to live a high challenge of everyday discipleship. We need to experience and receive from God if we're going to pour out and give. So what, how are we as a church family going to do that? Uh, a few things. The first thing. Go ahead, you. Renewal retreats. The renewal retreats. We, I've been talking about them. These are going to be weekends where men, a weekend for men and a weekend for women, where I've been working diligently to find a location. I think I found one. I'm just finalizing dates with a a couple that is older that's not very good at email communication. Or I I may have to write snail mail. I'll just say that. Um, Awesome. Love it. Wonderful. Beautiful. So it's going to be a weekend where women, you're going to have a chance to do that. It's going to be a guided spiritual direction environment, listening, understanding your story. The practices of renewal are going to be the focus. Men, we're coming together to do the same thing on two different weekends over the next six months. I will get you dates shortly on when those are going to be. I'm very excited about them. My prayer is that you, these are... um, uh, why this is coming to my mind, I don't know. But think of Sonic the Hedgehog, you know, when you're running in Sonic and you have those super fast arrows and then you go super, you go extra fast. My prayer is those, this weekend is that arrow. That was not in my notes. So if that's a bad metaphor, I'm sorry. It's what I got for the moment. So we're going to do Sonic the Hedgehog retreats. No, I'm joking. So those are going to be times to experience, be renewed, learn um, different contemplative spiritual practices so that we can... Yeah, so we're bringing in uh, other people to help lead and guide them. We're going to, so I don't, I'll, I'll tell you more about those in the future, but they are going to happen. Second, uh, we're going to be starting a monthly, what we're calling Seek First. Brandon is going to share more about this in the coming days. He's going to take some leadership and charge on this. But these are going to be monthly prayer and worship nights. Learning what it means to be led, empowered by the Spirit of God. So the first one of these is going to be Sunday night, uh, January 22nd, 
at Lifeway Church. The idea of what we're doing is we're going to be doing these uh, labs. And for those of you that don't know, our Soma labs are one Sunday morning a month. We have a big meal together. And then we do a one hour training that is for the purpose of empowering missional community life. There's a discipleship pathway that we're working on to that. 22nd. Yeah. I'll get there. You guys, are, give me a second. Got to hear the why before the what and the how. Okay. So 22nd. Um, what? Uh, these are at Lifeway, 630. The whole idea of these times is to learn what it means to be empowered and have experiences where we're experiencing God together. The lab in the morning is going to be a training without music. And then that night is going to be a full worship team by God's grace in the near future. That will be a more of a prayer and worship environment. So so that we're in a Sunday within a 24 hour period, you're still getting the full experience of what it means to encounter God in the various ways. So every and also during the labs are Mo's done a great job of Sunday fun days. So the kids will still be doing the Sunday fun days on those times. I'm working on, we're finalizing the dates based on the retreats of what that's gonna look like. You'll get that in the near future. The next thing um, is men's and women's meetups. I don't think we have this, but we're gonna be doing uh, alternating months. Every other month, we're gonna have a men's meetup where we're able to get a lot of the men together and hang out. Uh, Then the other months, we're gonna have women getting together one Monday night a month uh, the first one of those is going to be up for the men. It's our turn. The ladies were able to meet in December. Men, we're going to get together on January 23rd. We're going to find out the details. Uh, I'm waiting to hear from a team that's putting together the details for that to make sure we have it. But it's just a time of relationship, intentional time of building relationship across our missional communities. So those are a few things that we're doing. And we're putting more t- uh, with Brandon's help and his leadership we're wanting to, and we're praying for this more and more. We're wanting to set um, uh, an expectation, if I could say it that way, that as we come together as the people of God on Sunday, there's an anticipation for what God wants to do in our midst. And that comes down to all of us. We need to receive from God if we are to give the life that he's called us to. Right? We want to make these get our gatherings on Sundays. We want to build an expectation and ask each of us, what are you expecting when you come up to a gathering? What are you asking God to do in your life? What is a prayer that you need? Are you just like at your wit's end and you just need refreshment? Like, what are you coming with to our gatherings? That you need the people of God to help you with. So that when you're in your missional community in everyday life, you can do what God's called you to do. What is it that you're, you need? What is your expectation? And what are you anticipating for? Do you really think that God is in our midst right now? That as we sing, as we raise our hands, as we clap, as we worship through the word, as we do all, we take communion... Do you really believe that God is here among us right now? Because if we did believe that, we would expect him to do something in our midst. Right? This would be like, okay, God's here. Almost like sitting on the edge of our seats thinking that something's going to be different as a result. Right? 
that is the heartbeat. That is the desire because these are environments to be renewed. These are when, when we can sing and experience God in our midst. Brandon and the team, Darian's done a wonderful job of this. And just to grow up as a church family with this anticipation and expectation of that. There are more things that God's doing in missional communities. We've already got a plan to see two people baptized in the next month, which is awesome. Seeing more and more of that. We want more of those things. We baptized five people last year, which is praise God. Love to see that. And I've already started praying, God, would you double that among us this year? Would we see more than that? Would we see at least 10 of that? Oh, what are you doing? There you go. Yeah, love it. So there, we're, you see, we're trying to build this out more and more, not just to spin our wheels, but so that you can experience an encounter. Because that's what we need. Desperately. I know some of you, like, you hear this experience God talk, and you're like, oh, are we becoming like Pentecostal? Maybe we need to learn from them a little bit. No, theologically for the record, but our brothers and sisters, we have things to learn. We have things that we can be empowered. And you know what, guys, like this is so good. Like I'm energized. I'm excited about where we are. It's been hard years and we've, we've been able to share that, but this is the start of something. I almost went to high school musical right there. Almost. Well, Sonic, what am I doing? I need, to, I need to go back to transcribing my sermons, I guess, so I don't talk about Sonic and High School Musical. Um, we'll edit that part out on the recording. Oh, yeah, Leonardo DiCaprio. Wow, here we go. So all of this is because of what God has already done for us, and that's why we go to the table. We're not trying to add more to our life. We're not trying to do more, try harder. We're not trying to fill in the blank. We are trying to, as the people of God, learn what it means to experience him, to receive from him. And in 1 Corinthians 15, this is what Paul says. He says, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, in which you are being saved. We have received the good news of what Jesus has done for us. That while we were yet sinners, Jesus, God in the flesh, lived the perfect life. He died in our place for our sins, sacrificing himself, taking on the form of a servant and a slave. And, and by grace... We receive from him. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. But by God's grace, undeserved favor, he looks at each and every one of you and says, I want that one to be mine. You may be an enemy, but I want you to be a child. You may think you're unloved, but I want you to be loved. You may think you have to do more for God to love you. And what God is saying to each of us right now is saying, no, I've already shown my love for you in this. While you were an enemy, while you were Judas with filth on your feet, Jesus comes to you and says, I want to clean you. Receive this good news. 
And we go to the table, the bread symbolizing the body, God's very presence among us as we sing and as we take communion and as we listen and open up the text that God's presence is here reminding us to receive his body broken for you, that his blood has been shed for the forgiveness of your sin. And we are bearers of this good news. We have received and we are being changed and our motives are changing so we can go and do likewise. But this is a moment for each of us to receive. By going to the table, by taking communion, it's a profession of what Jesus did was for me. It's saying I am accepting the free gift. I am receiving from God the grace that he's given to me. So if you have yet to profess faith in Jesus, that this Jesus not only died, but rose again, defeating all of our enemies. If you are taking communion, you are saying this is what's true of me and I'm accepting that. If you have done this for thousands of times, the invitation for you is not only to do that in remembrance, but to go to the table saying, what am I not living out that I need to receive? Where am I not serving that I need to receive serving? Where am I not loving where I need to receive love? It's all the cross. It's all the resurrection. Where am I not living empowered in my life? Where do I need to receive power from the Spirit?